0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Amanda Joyce Hall. On today's show, we speak with Professor Winston James about his new book, Claude McKay, The Making of a Black Bolshevik. The title is currently out with Columbia University Press. Dr. James is full professor of history at the University of California, Irvine, where he teaches on the history and politics of the African diaspora, including Pan-Africanism, Black nationalism, and Caribbean radicalism. His previous award-winning books include Holding Aloft the Banner of Ethiopia, Caribbean Radicalism in Early 20th Century America, published in 1998. A Fierce Hatred of Injustice, Claude McKay's Jamaica, and his Poetry of Rebellion, published in the year 2000, and The Struggles of John Brown Rustworm, The Life and Writings of a Pan-Africanist Pioneer, which was published in 2010. Stay tuned for the conversation about Professor James's fourth single-authored monograph, Claude McKay, The Making of a Black Bolshevik. Dr. James, welcome to the show and congratulations on your new book. Thank you
1: very much. I'm happy to be here and interested in our conversation. Thanks.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're honored to have you here. As I mentioned to you offline, I have long admired your scholarship and, in fact, holding aloft the banner of Ethiopia. The Banner of Ethiopia was a really important book for me um, that opened up my understandings kind of of Black internationalism and Caribbean radicalism. So I was especially excited when I saw the release of your new book on Claude McKay. So with that, let's get some background information on you. Perhaps you can tell us about your journey to the study of African diaspora history and how you see the work or rather the mandate of Black history and Black studies today.
1: Yes. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for your nice remarks about holding aloft the ban of Ethiopia. Um, uh, it was my first job, really, at the um, um, University of London at Goldsmith's College. There was an initiative to develop a Caribbean studies program there, and uh, I, uh, I was brought in to coordinate the project, and this was in the Early 80s, um, and it basically focused on the the, the, the Caribbean. But obviously, if you're do- talking about the Caribbean, then you're talking about the African diaspora. You're talking about the world. You're talking about world history, uh, because the Caribbean is so interconnected with modernity and and the wider world in every single sense of the term. In terms of commerce, movement. Beans, etc., etc. Um, and C.L.R. James actually maintained that it's the first modern society um, that developed in places like Barbados. Well, anyway, that's no matter. But that's how it started. That's how my work started. And um, um, and then I I moved on to Mackay, and we can talk about how that happened in a moment. But um, McKay especially require a type of connection to different nodes of, um, um, uh, of the, Af- the network of the African diaspora. Um, so that one into it in an even more profound way. Um, so I went to the Schomburg in Harlem and did all sorts of research over the summers until I came to the United States in, in 91. And, um, basically i did my dissertation i changed my dissertation from political economy to writing um the the, the my dissertation on 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 mckay um uh, so they you know i've been engaged from the very beginning um in that type of work you know almost um um accidental manner because i wasn't sure what i was going to do after i did my undergraduate and masters i one stage i wanted to be an architect <laughs> until i fell in love with social sciences and, and history um I, you know because as a kid there's a neighbor who was an architectural draftsman and he was studied for uh, studying for architecture uh, he let me brighten up his lines and stuff as a little kid and uh, <laughs> It was fantastic to see these patterns on the page, uh, on the sheet of paper. Um, but anyway, um, so um, I was invited to be involved with this thing at Goldsmiths College and that's where it started and from there I went to other institutions and came to the United States on a fellowship in 91, um, then taught at Columbia and then taught at Irvine uh, more recently. Um, well, uh, the Um, As we can see in the United States at the moment, (laughs) given what's happening with the scientists down in Florida and and all that sort of attack on so-called critical race theory, um, the work of black history and black studies is important. The very fact that it's been attacked in this way indicate very clearly that there needs to be that type of work um so um it has a very very important role to play in civilizing countries like the united states to let them know the horrors of their past and indeed the horrors of the present um you know i don't even need to talk about these things in terms of george floyd and no tyree nichols it's just horrendous unbearably um Uh, terrible um, for people of African descent in this society. So there's a great um, work to be done and there's a great need for that work to be done. Um, The level of um, effectiveness that it will have in transforming or or altering, um, influencing the the trajectory of the society is something that's debatable, but at least we should testify and um, continue the work and do it as rigorously and as scientifically as possible and as powerfully as possible um, to build it so that it stands the test of time and stand any sort of rigorous investigation so that's that's what i would say about The 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 mandate and of course all those it's not really a mandate as such because we're all individuals no one has the power to impose it upon us or us to impose it on anybody else any other scholar we just have to do our best in relation to this project this this enterprise of telling the story of um, black people people of African descent in particular in, in in the new world and elsewhere outside of the outside of the continent of africa
0: indeed indeed i agree and we and we need histories of of radicalism histories of black radicalism so with that let me ask you how did How did you come to write Claude McKay, The Making of a Black Bolshevik? What are some of the popular narratives or misconceptions that your book is writing against?
1: Right. Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, Or questions. (laughs) Um, uh, In a way, the writing of the book was... um, you know, has a has peculiar origin in many ways. As I said, I was doing work on political economy uh, at the LSE um, at the University of London, and um, and I was involved with a small magazine in London with some friends, and they wanted me to do something on McKay's centenary, the centenary of McKay's birth. And it wasn't clear which year it was, whether it would be the centenary would be 89 or 90. There's that sort of confusion. But in any case, I decided to write an essay um, on McKay. And um, as quite often happens with me, unfortunately, in certain ways, fortunately as well as unfortunately, it just expanded. It just grew and grew. Um and, and then I, I was teaching full time at the time and indeed directing a program um, at, at what is now London Metropolitan University. And um, um, and I had this large manuscript um, mm. on McKay and I thought, well, I'm more engaged with this now. And I've done all of the research on political economy and stuff like that. And I feel that I had solved some of the questions that I wanted to engage with. Myself and I had greater enthusiasm to write about McKay. So I decided to focus on that and I spoke to my supervisor at the LSE and they were in agreement and allowed me to do this historical study of McKay. Um and and, and that's how it began. Um and Holding Aloft, the Banner of Ethiopia uh, emerged out of simply one chapter of that book, of that uh, of that dissertation, um, and that has a history of its own again. It started as an article that I submitted to New Left Review. They loved it. Um, um, I said I want to expand it, and then it grew into a book. <laughs> so that's what happened. Um, so these things tend to happen to me. Um, and and my main reason for doing it, apart from this sort of you know, organic emergence of the project, is the fact that I I I was um profoundly moved and impressed by McKay's life and his politics, his courage, his audacity, um his humour his wit um um and his intellect generally uh, it's just uh, i I find him very engaging and very powerful i also because I'm also from Jamaica um black Jamaican um I have a certain sense of identification with him, and I understand a lot of his stuff that um, many others who don't have that background might have found difficult. And indeed, in the scholarship, I can see that very clearly that people don't understand the culture and therefore they misunderstand uh, McKay. In any case, my key motive behind writing this is because McKay wasn't sufficiently... Considered in a serious manner as a, a thinker, as a political thinker. And also, his radicalism, although sometimes mentioned, uh, was not really investigated or taken seriously enough. It's seen as a sort of a, you know, almost like a little um, uh, a moment of uh, madness on McKay's part and so forth, not something. Engage with in any sort of serious way. Or they, they just see it as an expression of passion, you know. Um, and so he's he's quite often, and it comes from James Weldon Johnson, uh, who described McKay as the poet of passion, and others have taken that that um, that designation on, but without considering that he was also a poet of thought great thought and he himself pointed out that thought was far more important than um than melody and beauty in in poetry he actually said that as early as 1917 and he always valued thought he learned to um to value the capacity to think clearly and and powerfully from his brother Euthier McKay. So thought was very important, and McKay is a great thinker. And I wanted to bring out that dimension of his work, and I also wanted to bring out the radicalism of his work and the way in which he engaged with different political ideologies in in a type of um, engagement with questions concerning black liberation yeah when he turned to bolshevism he did so because he saw that as a, a project a political project that could facilitate the emancipation of people of african descent of black people um and at least uh, ameliorate um their suffering and 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 condition of life uh, generally around around the globe. Um, and it's the same thing in relation to his ambivalence towards Garvey's, um, which he later embraced as he moved towards the end of his life. You know, he wrote a wonderful, amazing, long poem about Garvey, celebrating Garvey, although he had criticized Garvey earlier on. But he was always ambivalent. As early as 1920, he wrote an essay called "Socialism and Negro," and he says that listen, I'm an international socialist, but I'm supporting nationalist movements such as the Garvey movement, and I'm con- supporting Indian nationalism and Irish nationalism, and British socialists should take nationalism seriously because they're into weakening British imperialism and British capitalism. Um, So these are things that he he gave serious thought to. um, And this volume traces his political evolution, his political trajectory from um, his time in Jamaica as a young man um, to moving to the United States in 1912, um, then going to England in 1919, and, and spending over a year in London, and that had a profound impact upon his politics. And he returned to New York in January 1921. So this first volume deals with those crowded years of his youth. I mean, he was only 32 at that stage, but um, it's quite amazing what he managed to accomplish in during that first first phase of the, the life that I'm looking at, there is another volume that will come out, which I still have to uh, finish. And that takes the story from 1921 to 1948. Um, so that's the broad logic behind writing the book. I, I, I was, you know, people just didn't take his politics seriously. And I don't think people um, took him that seriously seriously. As a political thinker as well, um, so I wanted to do both, and in order in order to present him in that way. And I also wanted to um, make some some very apart from those broader um, considerations. I also wanted to make specific interventions in the way in which McKay's formation political formation, political and intellectual formation um, have been described in in the literature. Um, That is to say, one finds a ridiculous overstatement and inflation of the role that Walter Jekyll played in his development. Uh, And with that inflation, you have a... um, uh, a, a, a corresponding, a corresponding sort of diminishing, diminution of the role of Theo his brother, um, who played a crucial role, far more important than Walter Jekyll ever did, in McKay's political formation, his sensibilities, his intellectual outlook, his politics. It doesn't mean that Jekyll didn't have an influence. I pointed out that he did but it's been overstated. And I think this is part of the fact that Jekyll's biography was and is more easily recreated from public sources, published uh, material and so on, compared to youth And many of these scholars didn't do the hard and dirty work of going through the newspapers um, and going through the archival material that give you a sense of who Utheo was and what he did. And they didn't even look in any sort of detailed way in the correspondence between Utheo and McKay, which are there in the archives. So that is something I wanted to cover and, I, and, uh, and, and, and change the perception of the role of Euthio given the fact that he was so important in McKay's formation um, um, and, and and general development as a person.
0: Right. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to digging deeper into um, McKay's intellectual trajectory. Um, however, before we get into that, um, you've, you've mentioned a little bit about this um, already, but... Um, I'm curious about the process of researching and writing this book and your process in particular. Um, And maybe if you could recall and share with us any particularly notable research experiences you had archival experiences you had while, um, while uh, investigating the history um, that, um, or the history of McKay's life. Um, and maybe you could also tell us about your writing process because your book is one um, that. Um, that blends poetic and literary analysis of McKay's writings with actual archival material and even familial accounts from his own family. So just uh, speak to us about that process. I'm sure it will be helpful for students of history, graduate students, early career scholars who are um, thinking interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarily about sourcing to hear from you on that
1: yeah that's very interesting um in a way i'm a i'm a reluctant biographer and i i even try to resist the term <laughs> in relation to describing my 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 book but i suppose that's a term that exists and that that that's a term that perhaps in in one word anyway that that sort of captures or comes closest to what I am trying to do. Um, what I am trying to do really, as I pointed out in the in the prologue, is to trace McKay's political trajectory, political and intellectual trajectory. Um, and what I do in trying to execute that that type of work, is to place him, embed him in place and and time. And that is why I spend so much time on trying to explain and understand the type of Jamaica that McKay was born into because it had such a profound impact upon his development the sort of things he talks about you cannot fully understand them you cannot appreciate um the salience of those things if you don't have an understanding of what's happening within Jamaican society and 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 the broader broader world uh in which he was born for instance, you cannot understand the whole business of the number of women in in uh, in in that figure in McKay's poetry, the presence of sex workers, the treatment that the police mete out to. Um, Working people, dark-skinned people in Kingston, uh, without understanding what was happening in the countryside and what pushed people in large numbers um, to move to cities um, uh, such as primarily Kingston. Montego Bay was a smaller smaller outfit. so you can't understand that without understanding um the wider context so there's this always this interplay between the wider context wider society and the individual life the, the way in which that individual life a biography expresses itself through time so there's this dialectic that i try to engage in between context and text and context um, and biography um, and, and so um, I look at his poetry in order to understand what he was thinking and feeling about um, key um, political dimensions of Jamaican society in the latter part of the 19th century beginning of the um, the 20th century left Jamaica in 1912. So I take that analysis up to um, 1912, the type of Jamaica in which he was born, how he was shaped, and so forth. And the idea basically is to give you the reader as rich and and as full an understanding as possible. Um, in understanding McKay and understanding the man who left Jamaica in 1912 and, and, and moved to the United States. And so in the United States, I do the same thing in terms of trying to understand the locations that he went to and the way in which um, those experiences helped to shape him and what he was feeling uh, about those experiences. So there's this interplay between context, again, as well as text and biography. Um, and the, the idea is to try and bring those things together as seamlessly as possible um, and provide as rich a tapestry of... Um, McKay's life, um, as, as I, I I could manage. Um, um, what and that means that you have to study his poetry, <laughs> especially in the Jamaican context. That's how he expressed himself. There are no major archives of you know, um, letters and so on during his time in Jamaica. So, one of the tools that the, the, the primary tools. Tool that we have is his poetry and their interviews in jamaica press and and so forth, and people review his um, his um, his his poetry and people comment upon his poetry when they were published in as individual poems in the newspaper as well as when the two volumes were published. In 1912, um, "Songs of Jamaica" and "Constab Ballad," and those were published in, in 1912, and they were written in Jamaican Creole language, which was quite revolutionary at the time. Um, the, what what surprise or um, revealing stuff in the research? Um, oh, there there are a whole number of things. One of the things that emerges is the extent to which he. He engaged with contemporary developments, um, and not just in his published writings, but also in his <clears throat> in his correspondence um, with private correspondence. Um, and I suppose one of the things that that struck me uh, a revealing moment um, was um, was there was this dispute, as I mentioned before, as to which year he was born. And the consensus or the orthodoxy uh, very much based upon a work that was on my mind called Wade Cooper wrote a book in the 80, um, 1987 on McKay um, was that he was born in 1890 and not 1889. Um, 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 and so that was a, a problem even in relation to uh celebrating the centenary of his birth but (laughs) so but one thing that uh struck me and uh, this was just um it just dawned on me one day i was reading one of his poems um, called my mountain home and he talks about his mother telling him that he was born on a sunday right so we know the date was september 15th but we don't know if it was 1889 or 1890 um and it turns out that 1889 is the the september 15th that has uh, that falls on a sunday and so i managed from that that information i managed to from the national, um, from the public record office, of it's called, um, or um, island record office rather, in Jamaica, um, and chased down his birth certificate, and lo and behold, it it confirmed what I had in mind and what I, the hunch that I had, and uh, following up that lead from that line in the poetry, in a in a poem. Um, so that's one of the um, so surprises that I. I came to. The other thing that I wouldn't say, by the way, just going back to the whole thing of why I did this, is because there's also the idea that McKay went through this radical phase and then at the end of his life he became a conservative <laughs> um, because he got Catholicism, which was rather a surprise to um, his closest friends, certainly people who knew him very well, were um, really taken aback by that conversion because of his his uh, uh, explicit and militant rationalism and and atheism uh, for virtually all of his life. But what is interesting is that he was also linked to radicals in the Catholic Church, including Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement. Um, so he, he, he um, abandoned certain aspects of his politics, but he also maintained a level of radicalism and certainly wasn't a conservative um, when he died. Um, so that's another thing that needs to be borne in mind in, in understanding him, and and that's a misunderstanding that 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 exists out there as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, um, one thing I want to uh, dig deeper into is kind of the dialectic and the interplay that you mentioned earlier between the historical context and McKay's life, and this work that you're you're doing to kind of. Um, show how one influences the other um, or and how, how they influence each other. Um, so, um, I think you make a really strong case um, to show, that um, it's essential to understand the socioeconomic and historical context of of the period before McKay's birth, um, as well as the period that he's kind of growing up in. And this is a period that's shaped by changes in the sugar industry. Um, It's defined by the ruling class's weaponization of taxation and land access um, on the island. So I'm just gonna ask you to paint that picture for us so we have an understanding of McKay's context. Um, Why were these forces significant? How did they amplify and solidify the color hierarchy um, in Jamaica that still exists today? Um, And ultimately, how did these things impact the lives of uh, black Jamaican peasants?
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, um, the late 19th century was a period of profound transformation. Within the economies of the British Caribbean, um, and not just Jamaica, but Jamaica um, manifested very sharp um, uh, uh, shifts in um, economic forms and economic activity, and even the the, um, the, uh, the, the what you might call the industries. <laughs> People talk about the sugar. Sh- Um, Although it's agriculture, really, but there's manufacturing as well involved. And they talk about the banana trade. So what one had at the end of the 19th century was basically a fundamental decline in sugar cultivation throughout the British Caribbean, mainly because Cuba and the Spanish-speaking Caribbean was more advanced in um, sugar cultivation and outcompeted competed um, Caribbean sugar um, and Brazilian sugar was also important in that process. And what happened in in consequence was there was a decline in the acreage devoted to um, sugar cultivation, sugarcane cultivation. And almost... Um, Serendipitously or accidentally, Um, an American came on the scene um, in the 1870s and 1880s and decided to try out, um, you know, selling banana to um, Americans mainly in Boston. Um, The Boston Fruit Company emerged, and this man was Lorenzo Dow Baker, Um, and. He was ruthless and gathered a large number, uh, large areas of the island for uh, banana cultivation. And banana quickly was far more profitable than sugar um, by the 1890s and, and certainly displaced sugar. In terms of the revenue that it it brought into the into the island, but in that process of expansion of banana, you have the exploitation and displacement of the peasantry. You had land that previously had been occupied, not outright owned by the peasantry, being um, aggregated by these large conglomerations, not just. Uh, Lorenzo Dow Baker's um, um, so-called fruit company, but also by members of the Jamaican ruling class who had previously owned sugar plantations, and they learned from um, Baker that they could make lots of money from banana cultivation instead of sugar. So they shifted over, especially in the eastern parishes, where the rainfall was very uh, was is much was and is much higher than elsewhere in the island and and banana require a large um, amount of water um, so in those parishes st thomas portland st mary you had this extraordinary displacement of peasants and people working in the land ordinary people work in the land and these been taken over by um banana plantations and the people were Owning their own land or working their own land um, now became workers, agroproletarians, if they could get jobs on these plantations. Because many of the workers on these banana plantations were, in fact, indentured uh, laborers from from India. Um, so you know, it, it it just became horrible. And it, from the from the you know the beginning of the post slavery period, you had the Uh, taxation, the strategy, basically, of trying to uh, tax ordinary people back to the plantation. So prior to the ending of slavery, you had basically force being mobilized to keep people working in the midday sun on sugar plantations for nothing, right? They were slaves, enslaved people at the end of slavery the question arises how do you get people to go back onto these plantations especially when the planters do not want to pay them a living wage and quite often they also could not afford to pay a living wage because this their 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 plantations were just so uncompetitive economically compared to plantations in Cuba and elsewhere. Um, And what they did was to tax the owner people. They taxed their donkeys. They taxed their little carts by the wheel. They taxed the land disproportionately if they owned land. They taxed their, um, uh, you know, Calico and, and rough cloth that they use. They tax their matches. Um, they tax everything that they could tax in order to push people back onto the plantation Because if you if you, they tax their huts, and if they if they if you don't have the money, then you would be sent to prison or to the almshouse or wherever. Right. So what you had to do was to go to the plantations and basically work for starvation wages. And you try and keep them from owning land. Um so that's the that's the broad context within which these developments, these changes were taking place when when McKay um was growing up. And what one found was that there's a clear correspondence which which went back to the period of uh, enslavement of Africans between color and class and race and class. That is to say, at the top of the Jamaican pyramid, which has a, a very sharp point, but a very wide base, at the top of this pyramid were Europeans. Right, or white Jamaicans, these were primarily British people, right, and the leadership was almost invariably foreign, so the governor was always foreign, would be sent directly from London, and basically the officialdom, the structure of uh, administration, was peopled by uh, Europeans, the top end of it, uh, British people coming out to the colony to work in the colony. And below them were local whites. And below those local whites going down the pyramid, you'd have people of mixed descent, you know, um, people of half European or half white and half black. Um, and below them, you'd have Black people, you'd have the Africans, you'd have skilled workers to begin with, and then a vast majority of people who were profoundly working class and um, work on sugar plantations and wharfs and various type of labour and work. And that was a vast majority of the people, over 90% of the people were in this Black category. Um... And these were the people who suffered. And within, you know, right through the non-white population, you have this colorism. So if you look further, as the, the higher up you go into looking in the hierarchy, the lighter it becomes. So at the bottom, you have the darkest people. And as you move further up, it lightens a little bit and then it becomes white and foreign at the, at the very tip. Right? And this is uh, McKay. One of the interesting things about McKay was that he occupied a peculiar position within that social structure. McKay was from a, a black family, very dark skin. And I met many of their descendants uh, in Clarendon when I was doing the research. And they, there's a little boy that I remember very vividly. was dark and looked exactly like 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 MacKay. Uh, and this was a, a relative uh, descendant of the MacKays. Um, and but what was interesting about them is that his father, through you know, a number of fortuitous um, circumstances, particularly the marrying of McKay's mother and then um, McKay's paternal grandfather, uh, sorry, maternal grandfather, giving McKay's father, Thomas McKay, a couple acres of land. And from there, he accumulated land. He was illiterate. He worked at one stage as a road mender, which was one of the most, um, you know, uh, low-level proletarian job and hard and vicious jobs in Jamaica at the time, in the middle of the road breaking marl and stone to put uh, on the road. Um, these were low-level proletarian uh, work uh, people. Uh, and he managed, by the time McKay left in 1912, he had a hundred acres of fertile land, you know, different plots of land. It wasn't all on one one, one aggregated plot, but it was scattered because he bought land when people were encumbered, when his neighbors were encumbered. It was quite ruthless. And he just went around and bought them. So in, before the bailiffs came to kick people off, he would buy the land and therefore have the land instead of it going back to the government in that sort of way. And McKay talks about that way in which his father did that. and he, the fact that it was extremely hard as well and mckay really admired that um so but what what um thomas mckay did and what um uh elizabeth mckay mckay's mother did was to make sure that all of their children were educated and in fact basically all of them ended up in white collar jobs and the firstborn was uthea and uthea became a schoolmaster Yeah, a professional, very distinguished Jamaican, one of the star students uh, in his graduation um, from Michael College and wrote to the newspapers about various aspects of Jamaican society and life, uh, criticising government policy or local policy uh, in, the, in, in Clarendon and as well as uh, stuff happening um, nationally. Uh, and what is interesting is that they were independent. They had resources. They were basically rich. They were relatively wealthy, but they were black. They were very dark-skinned. And because of their dark skin, they still weren't fully accepted in the society. But it gave them the independence. It gave the, the, the property that they had, the resources that they had, the economic resources that they had, allowed them to be independent, to be free, to be able to speak their mind. And Euthio and McKay did exactly that. Compared to poor black people who were dependent upon the white power structure, bok, as they call it in, in Jamaican Creole. Bokra, right? White people to live. Yeah? Um, so you have that peculiar situation there that helped to explain McKay's position. And while at the same time, this dynamic unfolding was pushing the vast majority of black people into deeper and deeper levels of poverty during that early period of the 20th century um that mckay was was there in the island yeah so that's the that's about here. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Thank you for that. So let's go more into McKay's development and the development of, um, his race and class consciousness and this will that he has to fight injustice, um, in his foreign, in his formative years, growing up in this colonial context that you just laid out for us. Um, you spoke a little bit about some of kind of the consequential encounters he had, especially with you, Theo, that kind of, um, expanded his political awakenings, um, So I wonder if you could just speak a little bit more to that and tell us about um, his political trajectory up until the time before he leaves Jamaica in 1912.
1: Right. Well, here, Uthea was absolutely crucial. And it's, uh, you know, for non-Jamaicans, it seemed really odd. But what happened was that when McKay... McKay was the last born in the family, what they called the washbelly. <laughs> um, unexpected <laughs> arrival. <laughs> um, and he was the last of eight eight um, siblings. There were 11 altogether, but three of them died. But there were eight of them alive. Um, and um, one daughter, one girl of all of them, she was next to McKay. Uh, in terms of the line of birth. Um um Rachel McKay. Um but the parents and Euthio... Euthio was seventeen years older than McKay. He was born in eighteen seventy two. And he was a, um you know he was a distinguished um schoolmaster and when McKay was seven years old or so His parents, along with Euthia, somehow decided to hand McKay's upbringing over to Euthia, their distinguished firstborn. And Euthia at the time lived near Montego Bay, which is a good distance away from James Hill and Nairn Nairn Castle uh, in in Clarendon, where the family um, was based. Um and he was there for some 7 or 8 years so he didn't get back home until he was about 15 uh, or maybe even 16 yeah um and so Euthio effectively became a substitute father they didn't there's no evidence that they even go back they even went back to um James Hill um, McKay talked about his brother sending um champagne for Christmas and stuff like that. Um, and the, there would be correspondence, and you Theo would read the letter and tell McKay, Oh, your 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 mother, mother, and father send, says hello to you. Um, so effectively, McKay was brought up by his brother at this crucial age from. Roughly seven years old to about fifteen years old, when they both went back to James Hill to um, Clarendon, um, and so this sheer fact of uh, periodization and uh, and and you know chronology helped to explain the way in which you see figured so prominently in McKay's life. He basically brought him up. He was effectively a father, more a father to McKay than Thomas McKay himself. When McKay went back to um, Clarendon, he talks about reacquainting himself you know, or acquainting himself with the family, he had to get to know people again. It was really odd for him to uh, call his father "father" and so on. Given, you know, the fact that he hadn't grown up with him and so forth, and he talks about this very movingly in 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 one of his um, memoirs about his about his childhood, My Green Hills of Jamaica. Now, the question is, what was that? Environment like when McKay was with Euthier. Well, Euthier was a radical, by Jamaican standards and by other standards. Yeah, he was he was a feminist. He supported women's right uh, to vote. He supported women's suffrage when many of the Jamaican men, even some that were seemingly progressive, were against giving women the suffrage in 1919 mckay wrote to the press about this and in you know invoked uh, the name of john stuart mill saying john stuart mill for one thought that uh, women should have the rights and they deserve it and should have had it long ago etc cetera, etc cetera. um he was against the aggregation of land in the way in which the ruling class uh, dominated the land and the exploitation of the peasantry. He advocated uh, public education on a wider scale and more resources being allocated to public education. He advocated for income tax, which didn't exist at the time. He wanted a tax, as he put it, that would hit the pocket of the rich men. Um, and there was no income tax in Jamaica at the time. So that was something that was... And what was interesting about him as well, which put him well apart from many of his, well, virtually all of his contemporaries, uh, in terms of this intellectual milieu that was emerging at that time, was that he was an atheist. He was an atheist and he also was a socialist. He was a Fabian socialist. He was a, wasn't a revolutionary socialist. A Fabian socialist people, people. The Labour Party was created by the Fabians. And basically it was gradual change to dullen the worse, uh sharp edges of um, modern capitalism. Um, they were, many of them were feminists and uh, and Annie Besant, Annie Besant was one of the people that McKay talked about and expressed admiration for. Um, so that's what we have. We have someone who was outspoken. He was always writing to the press. It's incredible. I mean, letters I found in both Glena that's a major newspaper in the island and the Jamaica Times, um, which no longer exists and died many years ago. Um, but he wrote all these letters and articles in the newspaper about social conditions and uh, political issues uh, surrounding uh, Jamaican uh, working class and, and, and peasantry. So it's within that context that McKay developed his political outlook. Utheo had a remarkable library, and McKay, on his own volition, started to read the stuff in the library, and he was encouraged by Euthio. And then after he read more and more, they had discussions about the things that he read. Um, Euthio's common-law wife at the time, or... Personally, I, I don't think he was officially married at that stage. But McKay talked about his wife telling telling McKay not to read a book that was written by a particularly notorious atheist. And Euthyia comes in and says, look, let the boy read what he wants. And McKay talks about that moment of great freedom that... um that he could read what he wanted and think what he wanted. And he said uh, at the time that one of the things that gave him the greatest joy was the fact that he was his brother's brother. And that was part of the little privileges that he got at Euthio's school because Euthio was the headmaster. But it was also to do with the the admiration of his brother. Uh, And it comes through in all of his writings, um, this, this extraordinary... Uh, closeness that he had to youth here. And finally, when they went back to um uh, Nane Castle in James Hill in Clarendon, there's a revival, a religious revival led by a little Welshman. Um, and everybody was being swept in swept up by this religious revival, including MacKay's brothers and uh, his sister, as well as the parents. And the only people who stood apart from it was Mackay and Euthio. And they thought that uh, Utheo in particular had a pact with the devil, and they were being persecuted, and people didn't talk to them anymore, and they walked down the street, etc. Um, and, and But they stood firm. And it was only him and his brother. McKay and Euthier, who stood firm against this religious revival and this wave of religiosity and conversions that was taking place at that time. Um, so it's within that, that 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 is the role that Euthier played, and that's the type of um, political formation that McKay uh, uh, div- uh, encountered during those early years of... Of his childhood and youth, uh, in in Jamaica, and so he developed this sensibility. And there's this colorism as well that uh, prevailed in Jamaica at the time. Yeah, the type of prejudice that light-skinned people had against dark-skinned people. Um, so, and that was something that came out in his poetry um, when he was in the Constabulary, when he moved to Kingston, and you find that. Radicalism and the identification with the poor and identification with market women identification with sex workers in the urban centers people that he knew from his his village uh in Kingston he found in these desperate situations and the brutal um character of uh colonial policing uh he, he joined the police force which was on a whim and was just he regretted it in me almost immediately but it wasn't as easy to get out. Um and but he through that because of the encounter with ordinary people on the streets of Spanish town and Kingston, he got a profound understanding of the oppressive nature of colonial rule and he resented it. You know, um he said that, at that time the police force was one well, of the things i I regret in my life uh most um so it, it just radicalized him basically um it made him more politically conscious and more more outspoken in his objection to what he encountered. if you read those poems, it's almost as if he was he was traumatized by. By that experience, you know the cruelty that he he witnessed, and there are poems that he made. Uh, you know notes at the bottom talking about the particular event that triggered that particular poem. He talked about um, one poem in particular where um, the a young man got caught up with bad company and was being arrested by the police, and the and the handcuff pinched him and cut him and he he talked about the guy talked about you know the bleeding and the, you know you cop you caught me you know and stuff like that and 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 he was so moved by it. he talked about somebody being whipped by the tambourine switch um and you know person peeing himself and the humiliation and ah oh, it's yeah so that all of those sorts of things have to um deepened his radicalization um, during those Jamaican years. Mm. Um,
0: absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the concept about ballads um, because, uh, yes, in, in your interpretation and in your reading, it's, it's very clear that McKay is, he's really grappling with what it meant to be a part of that profession, um, his, gr- his regrets, as well as the way that he was traumatized bo- by it and how it radicalized him. So I'm glad you made mention of that. I'm going to move... Um, to our next question, which is about um, how McKay's worldview changes in the years between 1912 and 1918. And this is when he goes to the United States. So please tell us a little bit about what the United States and World War One showed him, and what Afro-America and the Bolshevik Revolution offered him during that period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, he arrived in um, the United States in 1912, and the arrival was not auspicious because he arrived in Charleston, um, South Carolina, um, in July 1912, um, in the belly of the beast. Um, South Carolina is the state that triggered the Civil War, um, you know, Fort Sumter, space there. Um, it's uh, rabidly racist and so on. Even though for many of the years after slavery, it had a black majority, but precisely because of that, it was very, very repressive. But anyway, McKay arrived there. Then he took uh, a Jim Crow train to Tuskegee in Alabama. Um, you know, which is another hellhole for black people um and tuskegee of course was run by bukti washington who is a revered but very conservative figure in african-american life and history and um McKay hated the place because it reminded him of the constabulary force it was very militarized and uh, you know he would have been almost 22, 22 or so at the time. And he was being, you know, people were being infantilized, um, the students there. And he perhaps was older than many of them at that stage. And so he left. Um, he said that he couldn't take the machine-like existence at, at Tuskegee. So he left Tuskegee and he somehow... A um, bit mysterious and I tried to unravel it as much as possible as to how he ended up in Kansas State College in Manhattan, Kansas. So he went there um, and he spent two years there and then he dropped out altogether in 1914 and then went to New York. So. From 1940 to 1918, he was in New York. And then 1919, uh, he was still, he was in Harlem and went to London at the end of 1919, towards the end of 1919. Um, America traumatized him, as it did many of those black migrants from the Caribbean going there. They just didn't. Inc- they weren't uh, um, acquainted with the, the stark brutality and um, uh, the cheapness of black life that they encountered here. Despite the horrors in the Caribbean, there was nothing uh, such as lynching, um, which was commonplace uh, in the United States, especially the South at that time. So it traumatized him. And one of the things that I pointed out is that he even moved towards religion. He started talking about God and the savior, and all these sorts of things um, in his poetry. McKay was militantly atheistic in Jamaica. The Apple woman's complaint, the shed, he gets the Apple woman saying, I, I pray to God, but nothing happens, nothing changes. Didn't work, didn't help me. And now McKay is, is turning to God um in those early poems so the landscape of lynching and the the powerlessness of um, black people african americans uh, was something that um shocked and traumatized him and he also started to contemplate suicide he has a poem called is it worthwhile you know which is basically a question as to whether or not i should continue living what's the point is it worthwhile? Um, so the impact was absolutely uh, profound. But what is interesting is that when he was at Kansas State, which was overwhelmingly white, very few black people, very few black people in Manhattan, Kansas at the time, he perhaps boarded with a black family there. Uh, we don't know precisely. Um we know the subjects he studied and how he did, and I talked about his school record and the college and so on um in in the relevant chapter in the book um but he joined um a socialist um group a student group while he was at at Kansas, so he continued to um express. Or explore that dimension of his political sympathies Um, but there are a couple of things that happen right Uh, which you mention in your questioning one was the outbreak of the First World War and when that happened McKay was already in New York he was in Brooklyn At the beginning, uh, tried to run a restaurant there, and that didn't work, so he quickly moved from there to Harlem. Um, And the First World War just shocked him. It shocked him to the core. There's another shock to his system. The Jim Crow conditions, the horrors of lynching, the horrors of American life, the cheapness of black life, and the callousness with which Those lives were extinguished um, by races in the United States and the license that they had to do whatever they wanted with black people, especially in the South. All of those things were profound. But as if that wasn't enough, then you had the horror of the First World War. And it became a horror to McKay because he didn't expect it. He grew up with the optimism, the Victorian optimism, That, you know, what people call the Whig theory of history, that things will continually improve. That human life is advancing an uninterrupted upward trajectory. And this barbarism, this uh, what he calls this catastrophe, this great catastrophe of the First World War broke out. Where people were just slaughtered by these new machines and new technologies of destruction, Um, you know, gas, the big uh, machines, uh, uh, you know, tanks and big guns, big bertha, the use of aeroplanes, the trench warfare. Um, and all of these things didn't fit in with what he had learned um, in his brother's library and what he had read in the newspapers and magazines that his brother subscribed to. These things should not have happened. And so he talks about the way in which that affected him. He talks about it in various places, um, in his novels as well, Um, but also primarily in... A Long Way From Home, a travelogue and come autobiography that he published in 1937. He talked about meeting George Bernard Shaw in London in 1919, and he talked about uh, when um, George Bernard Shaw mentioned the Great War, as it was called then. Um, he made the sound, the distinct, Think sound of uh, Winnie uh, uh, in distress, uh, a horse, a colt in distress. That was how badly it had uh, affected um, George Bernard Shaw. Um, and so there's a spirit of darkness all around. And um, you find that in a lot of his early poems um and then something else happened that gave him hope and that was the outbreak of the russian revolution yeah and mckay um wrote a poem called to holy russia that was published in i think 1920 i think he published it in the workers dreadnought it might have been in yeah i think it's the workers dreadnought so that was after he went to london um to holy russia and in that poem he says that russian revolution has given him back his golden hope It restored my golden hope yeah and why did he see so much hope in the russian revolution well, the russian revolution was anti-capitalist and it was resolutely anti-imperialist Um, It called for the self-determination of colonized peoples, that the colonies should not be under European domination, and Africa at that time, except for Ethiopia, was dominated by European imperialism. Liberia was ostensibly uh, free, but it really was an American dominion. Um, uh, Lenin and Trotsky called for the liberation of the colonies and the end of colonialism and called for self-determination. They were also resolutely anti-racist. One of the things that he brought up over and over is the way in which the Bolsheviks um, fought against anti-Semitism in Russia. Uh, The fact that Trotsky, one of the leading figures, was of Jewish descent, and there was a disproportionate number of people of Jewish origin in the leadership of the Bolshevik Revolution helped to explain that. But it's it's actually quite remarkable the extent to which the Bolsheviks exerted themselves in trying to vanquish anti-Semitism in Russia and give full citizenship rights, which they didn't have, to Jewish people in Russia. Um, under the Tsar, right? Under the Tsar, they were, you know, not citizens as such. They weren't given all these rights. Uh, The February Revolution in 1917, and especially the October Revolution, extended and and gave them full rights uh, on the same terms with um, every other Russian. Um, So those were the things that McCain noticed. And in March 1919, there was the first Congress of what was known as the Communist International, where sympathetic uh, parties around the world, uh, sympathetic to the Bolsheviks in Russia, would meet up in Moscow and uh, come pass resolutions about the way in which these parties should conduct themselves around the world in trying to transform the capitalist system. Um, And right those the, the, the history of the Comintern turn until the rise of Stalin, you had a resolutely anti-racist and anti-imperialist stance um, um, developed by the Communist International and also by um, the Russian Communist Party. Um, so these were the reasons, these were the driving forces. Behind McKay's move towards Bolshevism, and by 1919 he actually called himself a Bolshevik. You know, I became Bolshevik. Yeah, um, and and he wrote. He wrote in the Negro World in 19, September 1919, um, saying that Negro leaders should make a study of the Russian Revolution uh, because it's an important thing in world history. And he had this argument with William Ferris, the literary editor of the Negro World, Garvey's paper. And then in uh, 21, he had a similar argument with Du Bois. and he basically said that the Russian Revolution was the greatest thing in human history, much greater than the French Revolution that people were thought were, were, were taught to revere and respect. Um, and and so there's this extraordinary sense of optimism and hope that the Russian Revolution uh, brought um, uh, to McKay. And, and that explains why he um, became so deeply radicalized during um, that period of the First World War and the Russian Revolution. And, of course, the backdrop of that is to see the horrors of uh, American um, racism and America, white supremacy and, and, and American capitalism and the brutality uh, of that against workers, uh, black, black people in the United States. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. For sure. And so right after after the First World War, that war ends, right? But the war on Black people in the United States continues and reaches an inflection point in that summer of 1919, which is known as Red Summer. So um, tell us about... Um, Tell us about how McKay's kind of like embrace of Russian Revolution. Um, how should we think about it in relation to um, this moment um, in uh, in the United States of Red Summer, and um, and McKay's uh, writing of the poem "If We Must Die," which is probably um, his most popular and famous poems. So just tell us about how we should hold those things together, how we should think about them. Uh, also about the poetics of resistance and solidarity that's operative in that poem. Um, and and just, yeah, and just if you could just speak to uh, those two things uh, together, because he dives deeper into Bolshevis- Bolshevikism after Red Summer. So just, yeah, just give us yes. the understanding yeah. of that. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, um,
1: the Red Summer elicited that extraordinary poem. Uh, McKay was working on the uh, as a Pullman waiter at the time of the Red Summer, and he actually wrote it while he was on duty at work. Um, and he talks about the context, about them being afraid, the workers, the black workers on the... On the trains, um, didn't go and spend their time in speakeasies as they normally did because they didn't know, know if they were going to be um, ambushed. So they all stuck together rather than going off individually and, and risking their lives. And he wrote that poem about the horrors of um, nineteen nineteen, but it basically is a call to arms. It's a call for fighting back. Um, you know, if we are going to die, uh, let it not be like hogs. Yeah. Let them take us down. We will take some of them down. Pressed to the wall, dying but fighting back. Yeah, if we must die, let it not be like hogs hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and un- angry dogs, of um, uh, you know, making their mock of our cursed lot. If we must die, let us nobly die. You know? So that's the logic. That's the argument that it's making. Listen, if they're going to kill us, we're not going to cry and winnow and you know we're going to fight back. We're going to uh, trade blows. We might be defeated, but they will have to respect us and they'll realize that our lives are not as cheap as they think they are and they are going to lose. Uh, some of them are going to lose their lives as well. Um, so it's, a, it's an extraordinarily courageous uh, poem. But in fact, African-Americans were doing that on the ground, especially the veterans, black veterans from the First World War who would come back earlier that year in 1919. Uh, they were conspicuous in their involvement in all of the, you know, if you like, the, 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 the major spots of outbreak in Chicago, in Washington, D.C., in Longview, Texas. They were amazing. They fought back and organized themselves and protected the, the Black community. They were the guardians of the people. Um, um, and there are all sorts of testimony, and I cite some of it, some of them in, in, in the book about the way in which these veterans actually fought against the mobs as they invaded Black black communities in Washington, D.C., as well as in um Chicago and and places like Longview, Texas, um, so you have that element around the question of race and um, black solidarity and coming together as a people, and at the same time uh, you had in 1919 a sort of um, a sort of extraordinary level of combativity. On the part of the working class as a whole in the United States, there are lots of strikes in that early period uh, after the First World War. Um, the industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies that McKay had joined, um, there were cross-racial alliances. So it's a very contradictory moment because at once, uh, on the one hand you have this, you know, attempt at pogroms and attempted pogroms against black people, and on the other hand you have moments of solidarity through industrial action um, during that period. And there's also the idea that, um, you know, that you have the Red Scare at the same time. So you have a combination of the Red Summer and what is referred to as the Red Scare when radicals were, um, arrested and many of them deported, wrongly deported. Um, even people who were citizens like Emma Goldman was shipped off to Russia although she, she had been in the United States as a kid and was uh, an American citizen. Um, and it's true with the fact that there was a scare around radicalism. Um, there's a sort of record numbers of strikes um, during that period and all of this gave people like McKay, Um, people like A. Philip Randolph, the African-American socialist who edited... who edited the Messenger magazine, which was one of the more influential Black publications at the time. And then you had Cyril Briggs and members of the African Blood Brotherhood who had moved towards more socialist position from uh, Black nationalists and out-and-out Black nationalist position um, during this period of 1919. So that's the moment, and it's all related to First of all, the resistance against the attacks uh, by white mobs against black people in the summer of 1919, and the very presence of the Russian Revolution, um, its symbolism and radicalization that it engendered among white working class uh, people, as well as among um, black radicals at that time. So it's a, it's a very uh, interesting um, uh, moment in McKay's evolution.
0: For sure. Um, and then next, um, you know, within a year, McKay goes to England um, and he is inducted into this radical milieu of English socialists, communists, anti-colonialists. Um, and what I thought Uh, what I found really interesting was how McKay is trying to like grapple with these, you know, supposedly, I guess, or, or, you know, supposedly competing ideologies on the left. And and that would be black nationalism and socialism. Um, And you show that he uh, tries to bring black nationalists, anti-colonialists and English socialists into a common understanding and solidarity. Um, So I wanted uh, to hear you speak a little bit more about that, um, and how, you know, these two strains of, uh, left politics, um, that we see sometimes as divergent, which actually become divergent, like in the middle of the 20th century, when we're thinking about black politics, um, McKay actually saw, um, he saw some synergies, I guess, between them, um. So there's that, uh, just to hold that. And then I'll just wrap in my other question on uh, his time in England, which is um, if you could just speak to uh, what that time in England was like for McKay more broadly um, and um, why he ultimately decided to to leave. Um and leave after, after he published spring in New Hampshire and kind of like how the provenance of that book is kind of, uh, related to, um, his time in England, how the provenance of that book is related to his time in England.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, McKay went to London and, um, Uh, He first went to Amsterdam, uh, well, not uh, Utrecht. He went to, um, after leaving the United States, went with uh, a Dutch guy who was a benefactor. Um, He he sort of has a a sort of garbled, or not garbled, but maybe fictionalized diamond story about, about his moving and how he got the money to go to Europe. But basically, there's this guy who, um, gave him some money and they went to Amst- um, into Utrecht. And then from there, by December, he was in London uh, on his own. Um, and this guy was quite wealthy and he gave him some money, something like 50 pounds towards the publication of his of his um, poetry, Book of Poems. Um, so he went to London and he quickly linked up with Sylvia Pankers of The Worker's Dreadnought and Workers' Socialist Federation, which is really the the most radical group in England at that time, in Britain at that time. Um, resolutely anti-capitalist, resolutely anti-imperialist was uh, Sylvia Pankers, uh, uh, pro-Bolshevik, and they were the first people in Britain to recognize the Bolshevik Revolution, and came to the aid of Russia by disseminating positive information about the revolution and uh, against the propaganda that was um, being um, released at the time by the ruling class in Britain. Um, So they came to the defense of the Russian Revolution in a very profound way. They helped to organize a group called Hands Off Russia, and this is the group that mckay linked up with um and while he was with this group he also worked on the newspaper the workers dreadnought of the workers socialist federation is the uh, newspaper that was edited by sylvia pankers and During that time, you have McKay writing articles, and I mentioned one before. In fact, his very first article that was published in January 1920, called um, Socialism and the Negro. And what he did was look at the various strands of political ideology and activity in the United States. Looked at the NAACP, looked at the Socialist Party and people like A. Philip Randolph, uh, looked at the Garvey movement, etc. But in the end, what he, the key point that he, he made in the end is that although he wrote, I'm an international socialist, I will support the Garvey movement, I will support the black nationalist movement, and I will support the Indian nationalist movement. And I will support the Irish nationalist movement. Even though those movements are not explicitly socialists, I regard it as important to support them, he argued. And he re- regarded it as important to, re- to support them because he felt that the English socialists were very chauvinistic in relation to National struggles and they diminish the importance of these nationalists and national struggles. And so his argument was that look, they are an independent Ireland, an independent India will weaken the power of British capital, will weaken the power of British imperialism, will weaken the power of the ruling class over the working class in Britain itself. So to actually chop off some of the tentacles of this monster, this octopus of British imperialism will diminish the power of that organism. And therefore it makes sense for English socialists to support the Irish in their struggle. It makes sense for them to support the Indians in their struggle. And it makes sense for them to give support to the Garvey movement, because the Garvey movement is fighting for the liberation of Africa and the emancipation of black people, which will contribute to the weakening of British imperialism, not to mention French imperialism, etc., etc. And so what he does is to bring together or attempt to bring together the black nationalists and the socialists into some sort of mutual understanding. And it's at the same time that McKay wrote to Garvey, and I quoted the letter in the book, where he said to Garvey, look, uh, he, he actually sent clippings from uh, the work, a workers' newspaper called The Herald, um, and basically it was to do with the Amritsar massacre and the report had come out about the Amritsar massacre and he thought he would send it to Garvey and it it was quite extraordinary, the reportage in the newspaper at the time um, about the the, the sort of condemnation of British imperialism that came out of the the Herald um, at this time so he said, look um, I, I have told I have previously written about the need for Negroes to make some alliance with progressive whites. And he says that, you know, what you can see here is that they are fighting their own struggle. They are battering down this wall on their side. They are inside and they're undermining British imperialism and British capitalism. We, on the outside of that wall, should continue our work of breaking down that wall, and we should hail them, we should praise them when they do their part of the work, and they won't take over our movement, right? We'll protect ourselves, we'll protect our independence or autonomy as a black movement, but it would be stupid and counterproductive for us to condemn them when they are working on this wall and that was the metaphor that he had in that letter about breaking down this wall right and so that is the thing that he 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 um he argued and and so what he tries to do is to reconcile the anti-capitalist internationalist socialist dimension of the struggle with the anti-racist anti-colonial dimension of uh, the black struggle and anti-colonial struggles in India and Ireland, and he was so outspoken, especially about Ireland and the way in which the trade union movement was not giving enough support to the Irish independence movement. You know, um, he has an article called "The Martyrdom of Ireland," and he's just he called about the 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 the, the rape of Ireland. He was very very outspoken, very very interesting. Um, in the way in which he talks about, he, he felt deeply about about the struggle um, in in Ireland. So that's the that's a combination of those um, those dimensions of the thing. Um, and then uh, uh, he published *Spring* in New Hampshire in nineteen twenty. And it was um, supported, you know, it was basically sponsored by this guy, um, um, C.K. Ogden, who edited a journal called Cambridge Magazine. Um, And basically Ogden didn't like to have McKay's radical poems in the collection. And McKay had this fight with him, um, this correspondence about... Um, the poems and, and in the end um, Ogden won that fight because McKay simply wanted a book out uh, before he went back to England but he also wanted to go back to England because, uh, so go back to the United States because he just um, felt that he they, they was so vulnerable in England and he says that at least in the United States you have these ghettos these black ghettos you got these spaces where black people could go you know, could hide and hang out, uh, um, you know, such as Harlem. Um, But in England, he says he always felt a bit wobbly, especially if he needed accommodation. And he never actually got accommodation after being in England for over a year in a British home. All of his accommodation came from foreigners, from a French woman, an Italian woman. There are Germans involved. Uh, and it came from friends he had made, families that he had met at the International Socialist Club in uh, East London. And it was particularly foreign, um, a, a milieu with lots of fa- foreign radicals. And that's how he got accommodation. He could get you know, short-term accommodation, a hotel for a little while or something, but he couldn't get long term accommodations. And he says that the French woman was teased by a neighbor for having a black person living in her house. And he talks about going to pubs on Charing Cross Road with friends. And they refused to serve him. Um so there are all these horrors. They've uh, been chased um, in um, in Old Street, um, Old Street Tube Station, where he had to run down there, uh, because somebody, a group of kids, were trying to assault him, and uh, there's a South African ex-soldier that pulled his tie, and he uh, hit him and ran away, and he felt besieged all the time. Um, so that was very much, uh, you know, uh expression of his, his time in England. Um, at the same time, he felt that we have to support the workers' movement, <laughs> you know, horrible though it may be at times, he says, the proletarian movement. Um, yeah, so there's there's that, and, the, you know, I go into some detail and the, the deep logic behind many of those arguments that he developed and the horror of his experiences uh, in Britain, the heart experiences that he encountered at that time can I read a poem just very quickly oh
0: of course yes that would be
1: delightful I I particularly find powerful and and um, and he wrote this while he was in London Um, it's called enslaved and it goes oh when I think of my long suffering race For weary centuries, despised, oppressed, enslaved, and lynched, denied a human place in the great lifeline of the Christian West. And in the black land, disinherited, robbed in the ancient country of its birth, my heart grows sick with hate, becomes as lead. For this my race, that has no home on earth. Then, from the dark depths of my soul, I cried to the avenging angel to consume the white man's world of wonders utterly. Let it be swallowed up in the earth's, in earth's vast womb, or upward rolled as sacrificial smoke to liberate my people from its yoke. So that gives you a sense, of his mood, and his, his feelings at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: basically, to yeah. We'll burn the house down if we're not going to get our freedom.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, um, what I really love about this book is um, is um, that it's not only, or to me, it doesn't. It's not only just about Claude McKay's life. It's that Claude McKay's life. Um, becomes a window into thinking about um, the Black radical tradition and thinking about Black radical traditions and journeys through Black radical traditions. And I think that that is what, um, I think that is one of the greatest things you've given us by um, writing this book and doing all of this research. So um, I want to hear you kind of perhaps speak on that. How do you see his life um, you know, and he's in the belly of the beast in so many places, um, like kind of just like anti-Black capitalist world order, you know, from, from where he is in Jamaica um, and working for the police force in Jamaica to coming to the United States and being in Jim Crow, USA, to going to the imperial heartlands kind of in England. And just the way that you trace so closely how this is developing you know, his radicalism and how he's holding various, um, radical, like ideologies and philosophies and trying to like bring them together is I think like what, you know, is what constitutes journeys through the black radical tradition. And so I just want to hear you maybe speak to that, um, as our, as our second to last question.
1: Yes. Um, Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very, very important point. Um, what what one gets from this type of engagement with McKay and his thinking and writing is a very serious uh, meditation and engagement with the issue of how do we get emancipated how do we get our freedom how do we um get some relief if not out and out liberation um and 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 that is what he's engaging with and that's that's always been i, I mean it's one of the first and deepest meditation apart from hubert harrison who was his close friend and in many ways his mentor in the united states um, of engagement with this issue of socialism and black nationalism, um, socialism and um, and and the the the, the nationalist uh, tradition. How do you combine those, and why do you need to combine those? You know. Um, and it's because you cannot forget the national question and the race question when it, when when one's dealing with black people. And at the same time, we know that we have to deal with capitalist system as well. Um, so one needs to deal with the issue of class and socialism. And one of the one of the interesting ways in which the Russian Revolution provided this deep inspiration for many of those radicals is the way in which those questions were addressed by the Bolsheviks and also um, internationally through the Communist International, the Comintern, where you have this, um, this forthright condemnation of every form of racism. And at the same time, also you had the calling for The liberation at the national level, liberation of India, liberation of Ireland, liberation of the colonies in Africa, and so on. Um, So those are the things that brought them together. And I've got a long, I don't know if you've seen, I've got a long essay in the American Historical Review uh, documented documenting black responses to the Bolshevik Revolution. I can send it to you. Um, um, And these are the sort of the dimensions of the Russian Revolution that uh, uh, attracted black people. And when McKay went to Russia in um, 1922, and he was there for eight months into 1923, um, he met up with Trotsky and talked to Trotsky about these issues. And he met with great sympathy. And Trotsky in fact suggested that, he suggested to Trotsky that there should be a black division to the Red Army. The, what he called the cleanest army in the world. Because it was aimed at liberating um, you know, the oppressed of the globe. It wasn't just a national um, struggle in Russia, but an international struggle that finds expression through the Russian Revolution. Um, so yes, so um, it's 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 McKay's thoughts, um, his struggles, um, you know, his engagement is very much um, tied up with this deep black radical tradition that he himself helped to uh, help to ex- establish and and develop mm-hmm.
0: and fortify, right?
1: Fortify, absolutely. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. one of the things I. I mean, that's one of the things I wanted to rectify because he's a deep thinker.
0: <laughs> he's mm-hmm. very, very,
1: mm-hmm. Um, very, very sharp, and the way in which he deals with these questions. It doesn't mean that he has all the answers. No one does, but he engages with them very, very vigorously.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and, yeah and I think the right for sure, and I think that the poem that you just read for us kind of like encapsulates. Um, Exactly, that exactly what we've been talking about over the over the course of this last question. So, um, the next thing I want to ask you about is what you're working on next. You've told us that there is a volume two in the works. How exciting! Um, w- I'd be curious to know um, if, yeah, if, how this volume is going to cover the ways that McKay's radicalism evolves in the decades that follow his return to the US after England. And I'd also be interested to kind of understand why um, McKay did not return to Jamaica um, before he passed away. And I don't know if that's something you're going to talk about, but if you can share anything with us, um, please go ahead. <laughs> yeah,
1: sure. Yeah, no, I, there's a little bit of a preview of what is to come in the CODA to, um, you know, making of a Black Bolshevik to the current book. But what I want to do is to take the story from when he returned to new york in january 1921 to his death in chicago in 1948 so that's the that's the thing that um, i'll cover um, and this is a very important moment in, in his life because this is the time when he started to write novels so he in many ways moved from the uh, poem uh, especially the sonnet as a form to writing um, prose, writing, starting with short stories. He he published a collection in Russia in 1923. And then he moved on to writing um, novels, beginning with Home to Harlem in 1928. And basically his politics evolved um, partly through great disillusionment from a more explicitly Bolshevik type of outlook to um, one that was more more sympathetic to the black nationalist tradition of the Garvey movement. Um, So he came back, he lived in Morocco from about 1929 to beginning 1928, to um, 1934, when he moved back to the United States, um, and he came back to a United States that was just so um, in the in the depths of the depression, and black people, the suffering in Harlem just shocked him so so profoundly. Um, and during that period, then he started to think. Uh, he wrote a column. For the Amsterdam News, the Harlem, Harlem's most influential uh, newspaper at the time, um, um, dealing with the what was happening to black people uh, in the United States and more, um, you know, globally, uh, and. He basically saw the Communist Party in the United States as acted in very opportunistic ways in relation to black people. And rightly or wrongly, that was the base on which he came to the conclusion that one should move to a more black nationalist position. So that is what emerges towards the end of his life. It doesn't mean, it's a bit like Hubert Harrison. Hubert Harrison, right up to his death, regarded themselves... As a socialist, but he just felt that it wasn't feasible uh, organizationally given the racism within the socialist movement in the United States, the Socialist Party, at the time that Hubert Harrison um, was involved with um, the, in a deep way with the socialist movement. So, uh, you know, they uh, supported, um, you know, the segregation of chapters in the south for instance at the time and he he says that they defended southernism rather than anti-racism and socialism and he says that they practice race first and that's why Negroes have to practice race first as a defensive mechanism so in the absence of reliable allies um, one has to draw upon the resources um, that existed within the group uh, at the time, so he moved towards a more um, overtly, you know, garvey-eyed position, and he wrote a long poem, by the way, in support of Garvey at that time, uh, in the early nineteen forties, um, and and so that's that's the story that I'm going to tell and explain how he ended up where he did. The other thing that I would mention, though, is that. Um, He's, you know, as I said, he regarded himself as a socialist. And he was in the, he talks about a formidable left wing within the Catholic Church. He converted to Catholicism towards the end of his life, but before then he was working with Catholics. Um, but in Chicago, he got a job there uh, with the bishop of the city and um, on, you know, political affairs and stuff like that, analysis for Bishop Scheel that he would give to the man um no, um the bishop um uh, name was bishop bernard shield um and um but towards the end he actually converted which was a shock but it was a left wing section of the catholic church um uh, closest allies were around the catholic worker movement And he knew Dorothy Day, the leader of the Catholic Worker Movement, from the time that she worked around the masses and the Liberator with Max Eastman in New York. And that was was the journal that, uh, the Liberator was the journal that first published um, If We Must Die. Um, So he actually wrote to his friend Max Eastman and says, look, there's... There's a formidable left wing within the movement, and you can you can come and join it if you want. But but of course that didn't happen with Max Eastman. So um, that's that's what happened towards the end of his life, and there are all these extraordinary publications that he put out in the 1920s and 30s, and I'll be al- analyzing all of those things as well as analyzing his. Political Practices, his extraordinary book, Harlem Negro Metropolis, that was published in 1940, um, covering what's happening during the Depression in Harlem, um, and exploring all the time in a similar way to what what I did in this particular book, um, but explore what, what he had to say and what he did. Um, from his time in Europe. He lived in in France, mainly Marseille. And then he moved to, traveled a lot through Spain and he loved Barcelona. Um, and then he moved to Morocco and lived uh, near Tangier um, before remo- re- before returning to the United States um, in 1934, as I said. Um, and then he died young. Um, you know, it's about 58 when he died um, in Chicago um, in 1940.
0: Yep. Well, I am, I hope that you will come back on the show to uh, speak with us about volume two, um, (laughs) especially, yes, it means just such a remarkable life. And I, I completely understand why it couldn't fit into one book. So, um, I hope that, um, I hope that you'll give us an opportunity to learn um, more about McKay and learn more from you, um, when that second book comes out.
1: I'd love to. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Excellent. Excellent.
0: Well, Dr. Winston James, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today and for speaking with us about your new book, Claude McKay, The Making of a Black Bolshevik, currently out with Columbia University Press.
1: Well, thank you very much, Amanda. Thanks for the opportunity and I enjoyed it. Um, It's a bit long, but (laughs) it was interesting. Thank you. My pleasure. You the-
0: My pleasure. <laughs>